Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Here we go. Brothers, sisters, siblings, welcome to Penn's Sunday School starring Penn Gillette. My name is Michael Ledeau, Penn, Matt, Freddie Rich, and I are broadcasting from the show creator studio south in Las Vegas. On today's show, we've got an author we absolutely love. The amazing Jonathan Rouse is here today to talk about his new book, The Constitution of Knowledge and Defense of Truth. In addition, a friend of ours who loves the book so much he's asked to be an extra host this week. We've got Teller. You heard me. Here he is preaching love, Mr. Ben Gillette. Boy, you know, all we need is a good guest, and you actually do the intro uh, passable. <laughs> I don't want to be embarrassed in front of strangers. I know, I know. You actually act like you, you thought about what you're going to say, and you didn't stumble through it. That was really, uh, that's worth it. That's worth the whole, here I am preaching love. I got to tell you, uh, when Jonathan Roush, this is the second time you've done the show. First time you did it remotely. But uh, everybody's so excited. First of all, both Godot. And Matt showed up. And then Teller said he was so excited. He's just um, consumed your two books uh, in the past, what, three weeks, four weeks? Uh, and um, he wanted to talk to you after the show last night, and I wouldn't let him. Because I knew if you uh, came backstage last night, we would talk about the book, and it would be harder to do this show now. So I told him if he wanted to talk to you, he had to come in here. So Teller has showed up on uh, on Sunday School because you are... I guess our most popular guest, right? Gilbert Gottfried, yeah. people love. But um, but uh, you may be tied with Gilbert Gottfried for our most popular guest. Well, I'm blown away to be here. I'm blown away that you're both here. If it were up to me, I would talk about the wonderful show that you guys did last night. Nope. It's it's like, <laughs> you guys have done it so long, and it was so fresh. Oh, thank you. It's the first time I've seen the show, and it will not be the last. Oh, thanks so much. Thank you. Well, Jonathan Rausch is the guy and uh, who is talking an awful lot about free speech. And your last book was how long ago? Originally 1993. What's that? 28 years? Yeah, yeah. Revised eight years ago. Kindly Inquisitors. Yeah, Kindly Inquisitor, which you can see it's up there on our wall. Yeah, the <laughs> audio book is brilliantly read by someone <laughs> named Penn Gillette. Yeah. You've heard of him. And uh, that was an amazing, amazing book for, for seeing that whole thing. And you do the argument, which is getting less and less popular all the time, that still is that the solution to bad speech is more speech. And uh, that argument is, uh, is very unpopular now. Uh, people seem to really want to uh, not have the discussion as open uh, as, uh, as it, it could be. And what shocks me is when I was young— uh, 1617. Uh, I really believed completely in freedom of speech, and people that were older than me uh, were the ones we were fighting against. You know, I'm a I'm a little bit too young for Lenny Bruce to be right in the center of, but I certainly reading about it a few years after after Lenny was busted. You know, I would have been reading about that in the late 60s. He was busted in the early 60s, 
And, you know, Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin and all the people, whether you could wear a flag shirt and all of that. And I just never crossed my mind that it would ever go the other way. I thought we were all going to be going for more and more freedom of speech. And now I find that the people in my life who are the most opposed to wide open freedom of speech are my children. Mm. Who are How 15, old are they? 15 to 16. And, and they uh, think it's racist and oppressive, that kind of thing? More than that, and I don't want to uh, betray um, uh, their confidence, but we were in a car, uh, just one of my children and me. Nobody else in the car. No one else in the car. And uh, they were talking about the F word, which we know was no longer fuck. Uh, fuck is completely safe. But the F word, uh, the T word, and the N word with a hard R. It's not just N word, it's N word with hard R. And uh, I said, well, those words aren't magic words. They aren't magic words. They're just, they're just context does matter. Uh, there is no magic of just uttering those. And then to demonstrate that, <laughs> I then uttered those words in the car alone. Incredibly upset. Very upset and telling each other and took them a while to get over it. I mean, really... It's so drilled into them that there are certain words that can't be said, that it that it's really really remarkable. Yeah, it's uh, it's almost totemic. The one that that I don't understand is is F. I assume that's faggot. Yeah, and I'm homosexual. Uh, we appropriated queer. One of the great books in the genre is uh, Larry Kramer's Faggot, mm -hmm. a great novel. And suddenly it's the F word. And I'm going like, wait, wait a minute. I'm gay. Who makes these rules? I don't make these rules. We're not offended by this if it's if the context is talking about the word rather than confronting someone in a hateful personal way. And so this is not this is not helping gay people particularly to to criminalize words. And there's no doubt that the word gay can also be used with with a great deal of venom. Yeah. And well you can, you know, if you're anti-Semitic, you can recruit words like lampshade. Mm-hmm. Soap. You know, there's the, the chasing after particular words as if they were, forgive the term, magical incantations, something you guys would know a little bit about. This is a waste of time. It is, it is not helping the people who need help. It is not diminishing the hate. Um, the problem with hate speech is, as you know, it's, it's not the speech, it's the hate. And the way you go after the hate is by uh, replacing bad ideas with better ideas uh, by persuasion. It's not by banning vocabulary. That idea uh, goes, goes much deeper that uh, uh, people who make, what about the people who have made mistakes in the past? That's one of the things that's, you know, when those who uh, judge people in the past by the present are doomed to be judged in the future. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the future is always condescending to the past, always. And uh, the idea that redemption, which was such a, such a beautiful and important idea to humanity, uh, has there been, and I haven't been following this that close, has there been a case of someone who has, and I, I've been avoiding using this, but I guess we got to, uh, canceled, who has come back um, really with a redemption story, uh, well, they certainly have private redemption stories. I'd be curious to know why you're reluctant to use the word canceled. I've, I've adopted it and use it. I think it's meaningful and an important word. 
a useful word. Um, I've I've met any number of people. One is a scholar named Rebecca Tuvel, who's in my book, the Constitution of Knowledge, who have been through severe, devastating cancel campaigns. These are campaigns that that attempted to destroy their reputation, um, that resulted in friends and colleagues turning their back, being unwilling to talk to them, defend them. This is this is a psychologically devastating experience. You feel the world is falling apart. But she came back from that stronger. And people do. It's a terrible experience to go through. But she said this had opened her eyes to how fragile free speech and free thought is. She's a professor, and she wrote an obscure academic article. She's a philosopher. And her article said, well, look, if people can declare their gender, why shouldn't they be able to declare their race? And she's talking about this controversial case where Mm -hmm. this woman who turned out to be... um, hereditarily white said she was black. So this is not a crazy idea, but it brought a firestorm down on her because she was a tempting target. Uh, Hundreds of people signed a petition, demanded her article be retracted, said she was a terrible person. Um, And she says she came back stronger from that. And and a lot of people do say that. So individuals come back. But that's not really a redemption story, you know, uh, I mean, she didn't change her position, did she, particularly? She got stronger, but but yeah, I don't know about public redemption. What I, what I, what I mean is somebody who, uh, there was this case a long time ago uh, where a Holocaust denier um, wanted to write a book proving that the Holocaust did not happen. And they had already written a lot of stuff like that. They were clearly anti-Semitic and clearly crazy. Uh and they went and did the research and uh, convinced themselves that the Holocaust did, did happen. Not too hard to do. <laughs> but, they went uh, to a museum. What's that? They went to one museum. Yeah, to a museum. Read one Whoa. book. <laughs> Whoa, yes, it did. But they wrote a book that actually had a lot of proofs that, that were laid out in an interesting, interesting way. And nobody on either side... Uh, Obviously, no one cares about that book, right? Because those who don't want to read it by a Holocaust denier and those who were writing the book before happen. But what about the person who um, uses the word? Uh, I mean, Kevin, uh, the the um, uh, comedian who Hart? Did, Kevin Hart, yeah, Kevin Hart, yeah. Um, he did that thing where he was um, thrown off the Emmys was it the Emmys you're supposed to host the Oscars and Oscars. they dug up is like tweets from years and years ago when Twitter first kind of came about there were there were anti-gay or yeah jokes actually actually jokes more jokes than anti-gay yeah and uh he went through a whole apology thing yeah and kind of came out the other side did you follow that at all yeah a little bit the ones involving celebrities and Oscars are such outlying cases mm-hmm. and you know these guys have ratings to worry about and and the thing with uh, David Chappelle Netflix uh, I'm for comedy but there's a lot of additional equities there the ones that bother me more are the ordinary people like the Democratic actually left of center analyst David Shore who was fired the day after sending out an innocuous tweet summarizing a study or people like Rebecca Tuvel who had her entire academic, career brought down around her head and threats of losing her job and everything else. And these are these are people who are not in the public limelight. These are people who are just going about their business. If, if I could, though, just make a broader point, 
Pen, about where you're going with this. You, you asked about the word redemption, and, and maybe that's the wrong thing to expect. So the, the key to the constitution of knowledge, or one of the keys to it, is that we kill our hypotheses instead of each other. Mm-hmm. And that's a revolution in human affairs, because for the first 200,000 years, if you wanted to get rid of what you thought was a bad idea, you killed or ostracized or jailed or silenced the person who had it. And they were gone for a long time. So the reason science works so well is not that it doesn't make mistakes, it's that it makes so many mistakes so quickly. And, and just it makes hundreds and hundreds of thousands of mistakes every day. And the key to that is that the punishment for being in error is that you lose the argument and we all move on. It's not a career-ending experience to make a mistake. And that's critical to the whole enterprise. So if you change the rules so that one mistake and you're done in the eyes of society, no one will venture in error and then we get no knowledge. So what we're looking for isn't necessarily redemption where you know society says, oh, oh gosh, Penn, we were so wrong to cancel you. We should never have done that. You're redeemed in our eyes. It should just be more like, you know, okay, Penn said something. Other people don't like it. He was criticized. The next day we move on. Uh, Penn learned something. We all learned something. That's the process of learning, and that's what's getting short-circuited by canceling, because you it, canceling can happen to anyone at any moment. It doesn't have to be something controversial. One guy was, was fired from his job because some people tweeted, misinterpreted the hands. He was, he was holding his hand out of the car window, and someone said that and tweeted and said, this is a uh, this is a white supremacist hand gesture. Well, he was cracking his knuckles, but he was fired the next day. Right? These are extreme penalties for extremely minor faux pas, if they're even that. And in a society where you just fall off a cliff at any moment, if somebody thinks you're wrong, is not a society where we can speak or think or learn. Now, I mean, the whole, what's so troubling uh, for someone who wants to, really in my heart, very much wants to be a free speech absolutist. The problem is that the people who are canceling are also exercising free speech. Um, if it's if it's my right to say whatever I want, it is certainly your right to say nobody should ever talk to Penn again because he said whatever he wanted. So how do we uh, how do we decide what is an attack? a free speech attack and what is if i say something that is um that is anti-gay and that is my right to say that and that goes into the marketplace of ideas why isn't it everybody who doesn't like that's right to say something it's just the personal thing is that is that the whole well in the in the book in the constitution of knowledge i i really tried to grapple with that problem because one of the main things people say is cancel culture doesn't exist it's just a word being used to stigmatize criticism of uh, dominant people in society who don't like being criticized. Um, And that's not true. So the approach I take in the book, it's diagnostic. It says, actually, criticism and canceling are very different things. Criticism is about rational persuasion in order to try to correct error and find knowledge. Canceling is about manipulating the social environment in order to get political gains. And I've got a a list of seven things. It's like a diagnostic test 
of, of seven telltales that you're being canceled. If you see one of them, maybe, maybe not. If you see all seven, for sure, I won't try to recite them all. But they're Come things on. like... Come on, try. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. I'm, I, don't, I don't have the memory for it. But there are things like, are you calling for someone to be fired? That should not happen in critical discourse where, again, we punish the idea, not the person. Are you reducing that entire person's career to a single point, a single word, say, in a single tweet? Never mind the, the entire rest of their career, their whole distinguished oeuvre. Are you lying about what they in fact said, which usually is the case uh, in a cancel campaign, or frequently they won't even have read what you said. They've heard about it. They'll say, we don't even want to read it. We know it's filthy hate. Uh, here's a big one. Is there a secondary boycott? So a secondary boycott is when I say, not only am I going to demand the firing of Penn Jillette for something that I think he shouldn't have tweeted, Anybody who defends him is also in trouble. Whoa. That's one of the main tactics that they use in these big cancel campaign where everyone piles on and then the friends of the target say, they'll come up personally, you know, an email or in person say, gee, I wish I could defend you, but it's too dangerous for me. Mm -hmm. So that never happens in the constitution of knowledge. You are not allowed to persecute people who defend someone else's point of view. And there are like, there are three more of these things. So when you see those things going on, yeah, they're free speech in the sense that they're legal, but they are all against violations of the Constitution of Knowledge because you can't have a learning society where people are behaving that way. I didn't realize how afraid of cancel culture I was until right now. <laughs> <laughs> Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Here's another thing they say, which is cancel culture is just made up. It's not really happening. Well, they've kind of stopped saying that because we now have lots of polling data. 60% of Americans in multiple polls are now saying that they are afraid to state their true political beliefs for fear of social repercussions. A third of Americans are now saying that they are afraid of losing their job or career opportunities if they state their true political beliefs. And that's a third across the political spectrum. Progressives now are just as afraid of that as conservatives. And that's the point of canceling. It's a, it's a chilling. It's like what the Russians did. You don't know what's safe to say. They don't want you to know what's safe to say. So you're going to self-cancel all the time. And people have looked at it to the best they can tell, but they, they're guesstimating that this is a level of chilling and self-censorship that's something like four times the level at the height of the McCarthy era in terms of the number of people who feel chilled. So we cannot say any longer this is an imaginary problem. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what really is so bothersome about that is you're not talking about any platform, right? That's not an issue with Twitter. That's not an issue with Facebook. It's not an issue at universities. That's across the board. Yeah, it's, oh, it's not about the medium. That's, thank you, Penn. That's such an important point. You know, social media is the shiny 
object of the moment. And when I go and talk about this, everyone wants to talk about Facebook and Twitter and did Trump get canceled or all of that kind of thing. So 1835, Alexis de Tocqueville, you've heard of him. <laughs> we had, comes. I think we had him on the show. But yeah. <laughs> uh, he comes to America and he concludes that the greatest threat to liberty in America is not coming from the government. It's from people who are afraid to speak their true beliefs because they're terrified of bad social consequences. In 1859, John Stuart Mill wrote on liberty. You've heard of him. He's mm -hmm. probably been on the show too. Twice. <laughs> At least vicariously. <laughs> he writes that the greatest threat to liberty in England is not the government. It's people afraid to express their opinions and their individuality for fear of social consequences. What these people are telling us is that although this isn't a matter of law, it's also not just about the media and any particular society. It's surprisingly easy to chill discourse and debate, make people frightened by presenting them with awful social consequences if they speak out. And it's always very tempting to do that. In fact, it's surprising if people don't do that. We have to go to great lengths to prevent them from doing that, to disincentivize that kind of behavior. And that's why we have a constitution of knowledge. It's a set of rules that says, hey, don't do that. And this is also, um, uh, and this is this all, I guess, with McCarthyism and so on, this has always been the case, but um, it is, uh, it is planned, right? I mean, I always want to see this as an emergent thing that happens in society to cancel somebody. But now it seems that people know how to do it. Yeah, and they well, have a set a, of rules for doing it. There's a script. Because we yeah. get stuff, right, Randy? We get stuff sent into the show complaining from people who've never heard of the show. Is that right? I would say about 60, 70% of our complaints are for people who've never watched. Never watched, never. never heard of it. So they have mailing lists that go out and say, these are the people you should complain to about this particular issue. Now, that was always true, I think, about... Uh, uh, with some religious groups and about uh, anti-abortion and so on, uh, and the, uh, the 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 complaint like the Super Bowl complaints with the, the with the tit slip on the Super Bowl that was all planned. Most people didn't yeah. even see the Super Bowl. Yeah. That went, but now it seems I don't. How do they get organized? How well, it's it's self-organizing. It's like a swarm. People look at what targets are going up, and then they pile on. Um, they pile on. It's not necessarily pre-planned in the sense that someone's sitting there hatching a plot. But what's going on here is if someone in my social group says, hey, Penn Jillette is, I don't know, a homophobe and calls you out um, for anything, doesn't have to be anything real, then other people in my group, my social group, want to signal that they are right there with me because they don't want to be called out for being reluctant to join in condemning this enemy. So they pile in as fast as they can, because no one wants to be the last in, in the door, because then they look bad. So you get these pile-ons that happen very quickly. Just a couple weeks ago, actually, an academic shared the email thread that developed as a cancel campaign developed on his campus. One faculty member wrote an email saying, if we invite this speaker to campus, I, as a disabled person, will feel unsafe and marginalized. And he sent that around. And within a matter of minutes, other people were joining in. Yeah, me too, me too. That is wrong. That is genocide. Then a whole department, then three whole departments. 
within hours, the thing had taken on this momentum. So it doesn't have to be organized, but this is, it's what you said a minute ago, Penn, this is a standard human social behavior. Social media did not invent this. In fact, I am a homosexual, um, and we were canceled years before it became fashionable. <laughs> I mean, so I, I, I tell people I, I was born canceled because from the age of about five, I understood at some visceral level, not of course intellectually, but I understood that I was very fundamentally different in ways that it would turn out that I was an atheist, incapable of believing in religion, and I did try, and homosexual, and that was a 19, I was born in 1960. So that was an, that meant I would be a pariah for life. Couldn't work for the federal government, couldn't serve in the military, stench in the, in God's nostrils, mentally ill, according to the psychiatric profession, fired from my job, if anyone discovered. So there's that. And plus I was Jewish. And that meant I would always be an God outsider hate, to God the culture. really hated you. <laughs> you know, in hindsight, it's, it was a blessing. It made me who I am, but it was not fun at the time. So, especially for gay people, remember what was being done to us. If it came out that you were gay and you were, say, a school teacher, or for that matter, a comedian, mm -hmm. you're fired the next day, right? And no one talks to you and your friends, suddenly you're a pariah. No one wants to be seen with you. This is how homophobia was enforced in America. For decades, this is much more important than the police raids, though those were pretty terrible too. And, and nothing really, nothing out there breaks my heart more than to see gay activists, um, people who should understand the price of turning people into pariahs because they're different, because they say the wrong things or believe the wrong things or the wrong kind of people that we, so many of us, are now doing to people we disagree with some of the very same things that were done to oppress us. That just breaks my heart. If someone in 1965, uh, for religious reasons, uh, disagreed that people should be gay, and let maybe start with the disagreement that there was no natural way to be gay, and uh, then go go further and say that even if you were gay, you should never act upon that. You know, if that was a position you could have, is there a, 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 a counterfactual uh, history you can make where people would argue against being gay without the canceling? Are you a well? Of course, the people arguing against being gay were in charge of society. So right. So what I'm saying is um, now. We think it's very wrong, and uh, that does mean we, not society, but me, uh, think it's very wrong to oppress people who are gay in any way, right? Right. Uh, so if someone, uh, how do we fight somebody who is saying something against gays without doing the exact same thing in reverse before? What's the right way to do that? Well, this is how... I like to think we won same-sex marriage. The, the kind of ho folk history of the gay rights movement is oppression, 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 stonewall, freedom, freedom, freedom. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, that's not actually how it worked. 
The first big turning point is in 1958, a Supreme Court decision that no one's ever heard of called 1 v. Oleson. Single one-line decision, just overturning lower court, gave us our voice by uh, prohibiting the federal government from banning pro-gay literature, which they had done until 1958. You couldn't put it in the mail because of obscenity laws. Seriously. You couldn't even advocate these ideas. Once that happened, a guy named Frank Kameny and a lot of other activists. <laughs> Who I heard about because of you. Yeah, yeah. Pops the, up greatest, all the, time. the greatest civil rights leader you've never heard of. Yeah. They begin using their voice at great personal risk to make the case day in and gay, uh, day out, as, as Frank used to say, gay. Day in and gay out is day, Yeah, okay. We'll <laughs> go with that. <laughs> day after day, as, as Frank used to say, gay is good. We went after the psychiatric community with evidence, their own evidence, which they had been ignoring. They'd been giving psychiatric tests. They couldn't tell who was gay or straight, blind. We confronted them with that in 1973. Finally, that changed. But it was a process of social persuasion, of saying, look, here's the evidence. Here's the facts. Here are the arguments. It's what I did on same-sex marriage. 1995, when I started same-sex marriage advocacy, I was 35, and I still remember my father pleading with me not to go there, not because he was anti-gay. By that point, I'd been out for 10 years, and he was, he was okay with that, but because the idea of men marrying men and women marrying women, he thought, was so ludicrous that it would destroy my career as a serious journalist just to advocate it. And at the time, that did not seem nuts. And for like 10, more, more than 10 years, we got nowhere. Um, but it turned out people were listening. And it turns out people do listen. If you have the evidence and you have the arguments, I still remember, I thought, I thought a turning point in my life had occurred. So it's context. It's 2004. I'm on a radio show in Seattle. And... I'm making the case for gay marriage. My book has just come out, and I'm explaining why it's good for gays and good for straights and good for marriage. And this caller calls in, and he says to the host, I think that your guest today is the most dangerous man in America. And, and the radio host relishing the moment says, Oh, caller, why is that? <laughs> <laughs> and the caller says, Because... He makes it sound so damn reasonable. <laughs> and that's when I knew we might win this thing. The haters helped us, by the way. Suppressing the haters is a terrible idea because every time the haters hated, they gave us a platform to compare our arguments, which were based in truth and love, against their arguments, which were based on hate and bigotry. Helping us with hate crime laws to silence those people would have set us back, not forward. Well, yeah, uh, that, and now that gay marriage uh, is a fact. It is a fact. My husband's in the next room right now. <laughs> Since that is a fact, uh, what do we do uh, with people who are now anti-gay marriage? Leave them alone. It's okay with me. We, we won marriage. We don't have to have everyone agree on it. Mm -hmm. So another thing that's, that's we, we talked about canceling, and, and in the broad sense, 
here's another thing that, that we need to guard against, which is against the constitution of knowledge. And that's the idea that prejudice and bias need to be eliminated from society. Now, that's completely illiterate about how science and social learning work, because in the Constitution of Knowledge, in the U.S. Constitution, Madison's great genius is, he says, we can't get rid of ambition. What's the only force that can counter sociopathic ambition? The answer is other ambition. You set ambition against ambition, that becomes your dynamic energy of society gives you compromise, it gives you progress, it allows you to have a multifaceted, pluralistic society. Same in the constitution of knowledge. Human bias, bigotry, bad ideas, being wrong, that's just the human condition. What do we do with that? We pit bias against other bias. It's the diversity of opinion that provides the raw material for learning, because when we can't see our own biases, but I can see yours and you can see mine and we can both see tellers. I'm looking at teller. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how it works. So we should never try to eliminate bias and prejudice from our midst. It's okay if there are people out there who are against gay marriage. It's fine with me. Let them make their arguments. It will keep me sharp. Maybe they'll figure out some way to improve the institution of, of same-sex And you also, we, the part of this that always seems to be forgotten, uh, when, when I would be very strong in the atheist community and the skeptical community, There'd be all these articles, uh, how to convince, uh, how to convince a UFO believer that there's no such thing, how to do this. And there were all these manipulative steps, uh, that, you know, first listen to them, first do that. It was, it was all about manipulation. And every time I spoke of it, every time I was on a panel, I would always say, and you have to keep in mind that they could be right. And, soon as you keep that in mind, all the manipulation goes away. So the question is not, how do you convince someone? Um, I don't think you can convince someone of gay marriage being a good thing, unless somewhere in your mind, you are listening enough that I can hear if gay marriage is a bad idea. Beautifully put. There's a man named David Blankenhorn, a friend and a friend who I truly admire, who, who says that his idea of civility is tied up in a certain sense with doubt, which is if you're approaching someone with, with just that notion that I could be wrong and they might be right, that there is something valuable somewhere in what they have to say and my job is to find that thing, you can engage them with a kind of civility that is not just sham civility. It's what you just said. It's a sense of there's a bit of a journey happening there toward knowledge, and they will pick up on that. It's very, very hard to change people's minds about anything. We know this. There's a lot of psychology about this. People tend to dig in if you just hit them with facts. Mm -hmm. To the extent that anything works, it tends to be coming, coming alongside people, first establishing something that you might agree on and can talk about. And then working from there and talking to them in a spirit of curiosity. In a spirit of curiosity and not trying to manipulate. You know, there's this thing that Daniel Kahneman uh, said uh, that I'm not going to quote exactly right. Because is he on the show? Uh, yeah, uh, several times. Uh, actually, I, I did a thing where I did a corporate show where Daniel Kahneman spoke and then I came on afterwards. And I just thought, oh, okay, God. good, good. So Daniel Kahneman setting up 
for Ben Gillette to come in and walk at home. But um, <laughs> I'm not gonna I'm not gonna quote him exactly right. But one of the things uh, uh, this is someone said about him was that whenever someone was speaking and they would say something, he would say, "What could make that right?" Not that it's wrong. Oh, interesting. But what yes. could make that right? Yes. So if someone says to you, "Nice," uh, there should not be gay marriage. If your first question is, what would make that right? It's a whole different way to look at anything. It, it uh, uh, It's really profound because it's asking you to see from their point of view what they're really seeing. That's that's beautifully put. And there's a politics of that too, which I mentioned my, my, the heartbreak I experienced at seeing, seeing social justice activists treat other people the way we, we were treated. But but it's also really lousy politics to come at someone with, you know what? You're an irredeemable bigot. You should be driven out of society. Puts them in a defensive crouch. <laughs> they find other people who are, I don't know, what was Hillary Clinton's word? Deplorables? Yeah. Basket of deplorables. And then it turns out these people vote. And who do they vote for? Not my side. So... The whole notion that it's a that that it's a useful form of activism to go at people hammer and tong with you're evil, you're bigoted, you should lose your job. Um, this is just posturing, but it is terrible politics. But you've also, if you expand, if you expand the word racist and the word homophobic to uh, include people who don't feel they are that. I mean, we can find racists in this country. They call themselves racists, you know. But when you start to expand the definition of racism to include um, every microaggression possible, and some of those I think we can agree are imagined. Uh, we, we don't have to, just to say they're all real. But if you include every single microaggression possible, and then you say this is racist, You've also destroyed the word racist. You now no longer have that word. Um, if you want to argue with the, uh, with the KKK or white supremacists, you don't want to uh, give them an army that includes 90% of the country. <laughs> uh, it, it, having those words, you know, I, I really think that labeling people with the word racist and homophobic and any of that is I can't think of a situation where that's useful. I have in my, in the course of my activism, I have occasionally talked about homophobia and identified it and I'm fine with talking about racism and is, is there such a thing as structural racism? I think the answer is yes. Mm -hmm. I'm even fine with saying that such and such a viewpoint expresses racism like you, though, I am much more hesitant to condemn a whole human being based mm. on a single belief that I think may be wrong. So it just comes circling back yeah, around. Yeah, it's bad politics, and it's usually inaccurate. Um, and another aspect of this, which which is related, is the notion of saying that anything that I disagree with, find offensive or upsetting is a form of violence against me. Oh, we, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Once you label that a certain kind of uh, uh, nonviolent activity can be violent. Once you 
distorted that word, all bets are off. Wouldn't you say, I mean, they were saying that, um, I haven't got his name at the tip of my tongue, but the geology professor from Chicago, who oh, was- supposed, Dorian Abbott. Yeah. Uh, they said that him being on campus was an act of violence and that was doing damage to people. Once you've done that- There's no limit. There's, there's, there's no limit at all. I'm going to, I know we'll circle back around to this, but one of the things um, I really want to uh, hear you talk about is um, in some of the reviews of your book. And this also is a, something that Pinker is getting on his book too, on rationality, his new book, which covers, oh, there's some overlap, um, is that you are um, finding fault with the right and the left. And whenever you do that kind of thing, when you do a on the one hand, on the other hand, which is not the way the world really is ever, um, you say the right does this thing and the left does this thing, which is so weird to me that you don't have as much canceling on the right and you don't have as much false information on the left, that it seems to be I have no idea how it could break how it could break down that way, but the right, which I'm now doing the same sin that I'm accusing others of, um, the right has this false information, this idea of uh, owning the libs, which I don't see on the left at all. The idea of saying something only because it upsets the other side. Um, I'm very good friends with Lawrence O'Donnell Jr. on uh, on MSNBC, and he is the one that would be owning the right if someone was doing that, and he doesn't. I can't think of many cases where somebody on the left crows about, I said this thing that upset the right, and boy, is that great. Now, Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin used to do it, you know, very clearly, you know, raising the Pentagon, throwing the, the money on Wall Street, all that stuff that they did. But you don't see it now on the left, and on the right, you don't see the kind of canceling. You see this kind of false information and upsetting people. And you, you you break those down in your book very clearly, and although I, I don't think there's any answer for why one side does one thing and one side does the other, but the thing I'm getting to is some of the criticism of your book would be the left ends up with their their big crimes being um, university professors lose their jobs, PR people lose their jobs, comedians get lower ratings. And the um, right ends up with the Capitol being stormed and police officers being killed and people being injured that way. And these are not in any way equal. What the right is doing is much worse than what the left is doing. And I've seen that in a couple reviews of your book, uh, not stated that way, but that's what I felt from it. I want to just talk about that. Well, it's a fair point and one that I agree with, so I'm not sure about the word much worse. I'm going to, if you'll allow me, like one paragraph of stage setting, just so people understand the background of, of where this conversation has gone. Uh, so, there's two big ideas in my book, The Constitution of Knowledge, that I think will last 10,000 years and put Plato and Aristotle in the shade. And 
be the reason that when the sun burns out, the last cockroaches are crawling across the cover of my book. <laughs> the first is the idea we've been talking about, which is there's a constitution of knowledge beyond just free speech. Free speech is important, but it's not enough. You need a bunch of social rules and institutions that keep us honest in the ways we talk to each other to develop knowledge. The second big idea is you're being manipulated. And this is the idea that if you want to undermine the constitution of knowledge, there are age-old ways to do it that exploit the vulnerabilities of human society and human minds, human cognitive minds, to undermine our ability to have the kind of, con of conversation that leads to knowledge. And the big innovation of my book is to say, well, it so happens that there are two quite different tactics for doing this right now. One is chaos, that's mass Russian-style disinformation. The other is coercion, social coercion. That's social media campaigns to cancel people and the like. Both are going on. The first is being, as you said, used predominantly by the right. The second, predominantly by the left. But that's just coincidence. That's just political groups. It's just coincidence. It's just working with the tools that they've got. The left has cultural dominance at the moment, so they use the cultural oh, okay, coercion okay, tools. Okay, good. The right has Fox News and it has the Republican Party, so it's using all of that to do what the Russians do, which is it's called the fire hose of falsehood disinformation technique, which is, as Stephen Bannon, Trump's advisor, called it, you flood the zone with shit. You foul the information environment with so much garbage. The media can't keep up. No one knows what's true or false anymore. They become cynical. They don't know what to believe. Maybe they'll believe a demagogue like Donald Trump. So the book says... These are two very different political groups, but they're both engaged in systematic, sophisticated information warfare to try to dominate, disrupt, disorient, and deceive the American people. And they're both succeeding in their own realms. So in that sense, they have a lot in common. So which is worse? So I wrote this book uh, with the exception of some small changes that I could make um, after January 6th. I wrote it before the election. And I'm thinking, well, there's a two-thirds chance, I believe, that on November 4th, Joe Biden will have been elected. And by the time my book comes out in June of 2021, Donald Trump will be history and the Republican Party will have drifted back towards something more like normal. It'll seem weird to spend like, you know, half a book warning against right-wing disinformation. <laughs> well, I think I know why you're chuckling right now. <laughs> and there's Teller over here nodding his head quite vigorously. Um, I kind of missed something, which is that disinformation on the right is not just a Trump phenomenon. It is now what the Republican Party institutionally and especially the Republican base are doing. They don't need Trump to do it. You can look at the partisan so-called recount in Arizona. Um, the Republican position now is that if they lose an election, it's because of fraud. This is fundamentally incompatible with democracy. Knowing what I know now, if I were writing the book, I would say that the right is the bigger threat. Um, the left is a problem because they do have that cultural dominance and they've, they've worked these, these intolerant ideas into a lot of universities and schools and newsrooms and now employers. But it's unlikely they'll, they'll control both houses of Congress and the presidency on January 21st, 2025. And it is possible that the MAGA right will do that. When you said uh, uh, cultural dominance, you just, you just answered 
that question yeah. that was so, so confusing to me. Why it breaks down. Why Lawrence O'Donnell does not do the disinformation. Uh, I had uh, not understood that at all. I mean, that's, yeah, that, but it could flip. You know, both sides, sure. politically, both sides have used all these tools at different times, depending on what's convenient and what works at that moment. Yeah, well, I certainly had noticed that. I just hadn't noticed that that's the way it uh, yeah. it comes down. Now, tell it. do you want to ask the, the question that you wanted to ask? First, I just want to say, I, when Jonathan, when you were talking about speaking against racism, but more hesitant to call somebody a racist, I like that. I like that idea because that goes with your your fundamental idea that you want the the idea to be the thing that's killed, yeah. not the person. Yeah. So not when you call somebody a racist, you're saying I'm I, I want to kill you, not yeah. I want to kill racism. And that seems like really the smartest way to go about it. I mean, that's the, that's the correct way to do it. The question I, I mean, I had a couple of questions for you, but the the complicated idea that I really was interested in. Um, was when you were talking about people who say, uh, I want equal time for uh, sci scientific creationism in my textbooks. And you said, basically, yes, you're asking for freedom of speech, but this is not the appropriate context. Can you expound on that a little? So, yeah, I'd, I'd love to. Um, the, the big message of a lot of my work, as we've been discussing, is freedom of speech is just the starting point. You don't get knowledge from just freedom of speech. There are three things that you need in order to get a, a high learning society that can, for example, put the COVID vaccine in my arm that's protecting me. You need freedom of speech, number one. You also need discipline of fact. That means that people who are members of the reality-based community, that's people like academics and journalists and lawyers and government officials, these people need to be disciplined about sticking to the ideas that have been tested over time by many different techniques in many different ways. That's what belongs in the textbook. So people are free to, to say and believe whatever they like, and that's great. But they are not free to put whatever they believe into the textbooks, teach it as truth. You can't just say, I believe in astrology, so let's put it in the astronomy textbook and te teach it to children. So that's the discipline of fact. That's where the constitution of knowledge comes in because it keeps us disciplined to facts. We have to use facts and arguments to persuade others. And then there's a the third element that you need, and the other two are premised on it. Nothing else works without it. It's diversity of viewpoint. In any room where everyone agrees, you're not having the kind of robust questioning of assumptions that's going to lead to finding truth. You're going to hear your own views echoed back to you, and you're going to think you're doing research. In fact, you're just in an echo chamber. Echo chamber. Echo chamber. Echo chamber. <laughs> echo chamber. <laughs> so one of the worrisome things that's going on right now in universities is we're seeing departments and disciplines where you're seeing only left-of-center viewpoints. In fact, where it's possible for someone to go through their entire career, undergrad, graduate student, young faculty, um, PhD, all of that, and not encounter a political conservative. And that's a problem because it means that people are not asking the hard questions that need to be asked. That's why it's important to have real viewpoint diversity. And that means that's why it's important to have a society in which there are people with bad ideas. So it's those three things. We certainly got that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, you know, one of the things that's, that's, really generated pens in my work over the years has been the fact that we disagree about so much all the yeah, yeah. time. 
I mean, that's a, a, a typical conversation is uh, bringing ideas that the other person never heard before that don't sound plausible, or that, you know, we look at anything and Penn will be very inclined to say, you know, well, that's, that's fine, but that was done, you know, and he'll, he'll cite some incident of somebody who did this years ago. And I'll go, well, nobody remembers that. You know, but the, it's it's a constant it's a constant back and forth. You know, I I I come in with all this like you know Bach and Bach and uh, Latin and Greek, and Penn comes in with all this rock and roll and pop culture, and it, it's a constant clash. And we test ideas and and throw them away all the time, and it's it's invigorating. You know, when it, uh, people say, "Oh, I how do you you guys must agree about everything with you know being partners?" No, I mean what we agree about is what we eventually get to. That's so interesting. And this is a dynamic force, right? This is what people often don't understand about the U.S. Constitution and the Constitution of Knowledge. We think like compromise in the U.S. Constitution, it's just splitting babies. It's reaching bad solutions in which no one really gets what they want. And then we think about, about the kind of conversation you're describing as, well, you go at it hammer and tongue and maybe you agree on a couple things and throw away the rest. Neither of these things is true. This is a, a dynamic force because you and Penn, in order to break out of these deadlocks, are going to appeal to other ideas that maybe neither of you thought of. Well, wait a minute. How about this? Yeah, okay, that's interesting. Let's go that direction. Same thing in politics. Compromise forces, once you get these, these deadlocks, forces people to bring in new coalitions and new partners and new ideas. Wait a minute. Okay, so if we can't do this on the taxes and we can't do the, wait a minute. How about this other way? So this is a dynamic creative force that's driving knowledge and driving politics. And one of the dangers of the kind of society that, that Penn was talking about earlier, where everyone is intolerant and on a hair trigger all the time, and no one wants to compromise or have these conversations, is we lose the social dynamism to be creative and learn together, right? To do what you guys are doing. It's, it's, it's just really good to know that you can have your feelings hurt and you can sur survive. You know, if I bring in an idea that's really precious to me and Penn doesn't like it, it hurts my feelings and I expect that and we move on. Mm. You know, tell her, I mentioned things that break my heart and, and here's another. You know, this is from someone I've been writing as openly gay since, what, 1991? What's that, 30 years now? And, and this notion that I'll be traumatized. <laughs> If, <laughs> if someone says, I don't know, homosexuality is a disease that's treatable with therapy, which some people still believe, that would be seen as hate speech on most college campuses, and there would be a huge uproar if someone said that. Or if someone called homosexuality intrinsically disordered, same uproar. Now, you guys know who calls homosexuality intrinsically disordered right now. It's the Catholic Church. <laughs> that is Catholic cheating, teaching. It is also hate speech. But so the, what's so often used as a weapon now by activists is you're hurting me, you're traumatizing me, you're committing some form of genocide against me, I will crumble, I will be unsafe. And this is so patronizing. We minorities, gay people, we are strong. I will not melt if you say something that is wrong or that I disagree with or that is offensive. I will try to instruct you in better ways to think. And if we had melted all those years, whenever anybody said, you know, same-sex marriage is an abomination, we wouldn't be married right now. It, it, 
there's also, and I we have to wrap up this show and do another because we're gonna we've stated all the problems in this show, and the next show we will solve them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's the way I've set this up. So that's be good. Ready. Maybe maybe Teller can solve. Be ready for that. No, I can't. But also, there's two other things I'd like to talk about when we come back. Is uh, one is that I think that the notion of evil is something that is really bothersome. That someone is not wrong, but they're evil, and that. That's another way to put that same thing about attacking the person instead of the idea. And the other thing is how much currency there is now with being a victim. Um, I see that all the time in um, uh, children of my children's age, 15 to 16-year-olds, seem to be clutching at something that will make them the victim because there's so much power in that, so much power in saying, I was hurt by this, I was hurt by that. We're going to solve all of this uh, in Wednesday's show. Because for right now, that was Penn Sunday School. That was Penn Sunday School. Cha-cha-cha. And to our listening You become naked. Oh, yeah, boy. Well, we're going to... We, 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 we've now labeled the problem. Yeah. Then next show, we will solve it. Easy. 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 Well, that's... It's knowing what the problem is. Yeah. The kids there, and then the solving it. Yeah. So I've labeled the problem. Now I'll let you solve it in the next show. Good luck, Charlie. <laughs> that was Sunday school. Uh, you know, I love you. You know, we love you. And uh, Matt Dolly, some people to thank? Some people. I want to thank the following free thinkers before support us on Patreon.com. Henry James Allison, Nathan Julian, Percival, Manuel Vidal Perez de la Mesa V, Laura Champagne, Petty Officer Scoop, Daniel, Terrible Jokes Will Resume When I'm Back Off Tour, Love You All, Rando Admiral, David K, David Peters, Shane Brevik, Blue Drinks Films, Brandon Knapp, Nick Dingman, Colin Durham, TheBigScubaPodcast.com, Christine and Bobby Mack, Warren Scott, Central Park Owl, Lancey Minshew, Stephen White, and Harlan Liam Clark. Thank you. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.